I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Oh my goodness, the time has finally come. Folks, uh, 2023 was truly a, a fantastic year for Brian, Taylor, and myself. There were a lot of highlights. But I gotta say, the highest of the highlights, I think, was the night in December... When we got together with a bar full of people at the Biltmore Cabaret in Vancouver, and we were joined by our friend, Dr. Gabor Mate, and we had the most incredible live podcast recording, and to be quite frank, to a a crowd of people where I would say about 75% of them had no idea who the hell the three of us were. Obviously, they were there for the man of the hour, Dr. Gabor Mate. And Dr. Mate is is truly an incredible guest. If you've never read any of his books, I highly suggest you do so. He's a wealth of knowledge. And we really took advantage of the fact that he was willing to take time out of his schedule to come hang out with us in a dingy bar and have a few laughs you know, roll with a few jokes, but also get really real. We had an incredible conversation with Dr. Mate about things like attachment versus authenticity. We talked about adult parent-child relationships. And, you know, prior to the show, Brian Taylor and myself, we decided, you know, look, we're going to go in here, we're going to have this conversation, but let's not make this, you know, a therapy session for ourselves. <laughs> we, we couldn't help it. Uh, But it wasn't just for us. It was for everybody that was there in that room. And it ended up being truly, I think, one of the the best podcast recordings we've ever done up to this point. And I just feel so grateful for having that opportunity. Um, I'll also say this. If you stay tuned to the very end, there's a really fun little bit where we got to pull back the curtain a little bit and get to know Dr. Gabor Mate on a much more intimate level. Um, so I hope, I hope you enjoy this as much as the three of us did, as much as the audience who are in attendance did. And I hope you enjoyed as much as Gabor did because, um, he seemed to have a really good time. Very excited for you to listen to this episode. Please, please share this to, uh, anybody, you know, anybody that you feel could use this conversation because there's a lot to, to kind of pluck out of this. It's a, it's a really It's a really big one. Thank you all so much for your support of the podcast. We hope you enjoy this and we'll see you on the other side. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's very special guest is retired Canadian physician, public speaker, and best-selling author, Dr. Gabor Mate. We talk about trauma, illness, and healing in a toxic culture. Let's talk about it. 
folks, we've come to that time. Uh, the 75% of you who did not clap because you knew who we were, <laughs> we've made it to the moment uh, to where to the reason why you came. And uh, we're very excited. Um, our guest tonight, for anybody who doesn't know, uh, is a retired Canadian physician, a public speaker. He is a best-selling author, published internationally in multiple languages. His book on addiction, the award-winning In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction, is used as a text in many institutions of higher learning in Canada and the U.S. His most recent book, Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture, uh, has been published and will be published in over 34 languages on five continents and has been and continues to be a number one Canadian bestseller and was 19 weeks a New York Times bestseller. Folks, give a massive round of applause for none other than your hometown hero, Dr. Gabor Mate. Let's go. Give it up one more time, Dr. Gabo Mate. Let's go. It's not it's not a number one bestseller anymore. Just to be honest, okay. You <laughs> humble, I humble man. I, I you Still say okay, it, okay, but it's not number one. <laughs> um, well, uh, Gabor, I got to say, we are we're elated that you uh, that you were up for coming and hanging out with us for a night. Uh, the last time that we spoke to you on the podcast, which was. Uh, uh, just over a year ago, yeah. you, uh, you, you, you shifted our world. Um, you literally uh, made Taylor realize and understand that he had some... Uh, issues. Some issues. <laughs> Which, like, we've been saying it for years. <laughs> now I realize and it, everybody's got <laughs> it. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I just want, I want to say thank you so much. I mean, like, you, you just, you are, you're, you're an absolute treasure, and, and you're, you're so wise, and... We're hoping to to be able to pull a little bit of that wisdom out here tonight, and and you know just just spermatoria it all over the crowd here tonight. Um, but um, but before we get into that, I do I do want to say you know you arrived here earlier, um, and uh, and you were hanging out back in the back in the green room with uh, my partner and and her friend, and uh, we came in there, and I said, Gabor, nice to meet you. Nice to see meet you in person." And I asked how you were doing. And, um, and I, I, I'm very grateful that you were very honest in that moment because there's nothing, there's nothing, um, there's nothing I just like more than saying, how are you doing and getting the response that I think most people do, which is like, I'm great. When in reality, sometimes that's true, but I think for the most part, it's not. And you very much laid out that, uh, you're feeling quite heavy. And, uh, and I just, you know, I want to give you a moment to, to speak to that because um, there's a lot going on in the world and there's a lot going on in your mind. And Yeah, I mean, how am I is always a complicated question. Um, it's never, it's never, I'm just fine. Um, but these days, and I don't think I'm the only one, um, I'm very much affected by what's going on in the Middle East. It seems like a very heavy time for me. Some people are much closer to the issue on one side or the other um, than, than maybe many others. But I think there's a general heaviness about it that what we're seeing 
this mass death daily on our screens is, is in my lifetime, almost unprecedented. And uh, as a Jew, I have very strong feelings about it, not, not aligned with the majority of my fellow Jews. I'm not going to go into the history or the rights and the wrongs or, or how I see the issue. I've talked about that in other venues. Anybody can find out what I have to say about it on YouTube. Um, but it's just heavy. And I wake up every morning thinking about it, and then I go to bed every night thinking about it. And um, that's just how it is right now. Mm. What, what do you... Um, I find... I find I, th- I think I think the three of us can relate to this, and I think that that's uh, it's something that a lot of people can can relate to is the idea of feeling like you don't your your emotions and your feelings about what's happening are all over the map, and you don't yeah. know how to make sense yeah. of it. Yeah. And I think it, and I think it probably gets tied up with a lot of like history and conflicts and all these, and and you don't know. You you just you just start to feel turned around, and like, what do you, what are your thoughts on trying to begin to make sense of how of of the confusion that uh, that is your emotions in such a complicated thing like yeah. this? Look, um, there's a real cognitive dissonance for a lot of people because they're told one thing and they've been told one thing about that situation for a long time where basically the narrative and the perspective of one side has been presented as the dominant, in fact, the only um, way to look at it. So there's that, and that's still, look, what can I say? You guys are too young, many of you, all of you, to remember the Vietnam War. But in that war, our American friends killed 3 million Vietnamese, and the American press lied about it from the beginning to the end. And those lives were exposed after three million people had died. Uh, then came the Iraq War, which you might remember, and the weapons of mass destruction, mm-hmm. and the media were all telling us about the weapons of mass destruction that any five-year-old child knew was a concoction. They never found those weapons. Half a million Iraqis died. On this issue as well, there's been one perspective presented as the only valid one. And I happen to know differently. Having used to believe in that perspective, I used to, I grew up in it, I loved it, then I had to give it up. I had to become what's called disillusioned. Mm. And I always say to people, well, disillusionment, people, oh, I don't want to be disillusioned. Well, I say to people, would you rather be illusioned or disillusioned? Would you rather see reality the way it is, or would you rather believe in some distorted version of reality? So in this issue, people are watching something happen that they know on some level is just unacceptable. On the other hand, they're given a narrative that doesn't explain what's going on. So, again, I'm not going to go into my own view of it, except to say to people, if you're really concerned about it, and if you're interested in it, if you are, Look at other sources. Mm-hmm. Look at alternative sources in the alternative media, um, whether from Israeli and Jewish sources or whether from other sources critical of the mainstream narrative. But for God's sakes, do your own research, do your own due diligence. Otherwise, 
It's just way too confusing. And finally, I'll just say, uh, what's the name? Tinahasi Coates, the American black writer. He visited there recently, or not that long ago, as I have. I was there a year and a half ago. And he said, before he went, he thought it was so complicated. But once you go there, it's not that complicated. Mm -hmm. So the complication is, again, very much of the version of history that we've been told. But when you get down to it, and again, I'm not going to go into the details here, but when you go down to it, it's not that complicated. Mm. I, I mean, I want to say, first of all, thank you for sharing that. And, um, you know, one of, the, one of the reasons why this is, this is such a, a, a special and, and, you know, to be very memorable experience for the three of us is the fact that you, uh, and don't take this the wrong way, but you've been around for a while. Um, <laughs> And uh, whoa, whoa. How, how, how dare you? <laughs> you're, you're old, uh, and yep, you know, I'll and, be uh, actually and, one, one month and one day from now, I'll be 80. So, there you are, right? Yeah. Right, right. And, and, and to be you know, to be quite frank, when we reached out to, to Gabor, we said, Look. We know you, you, you might not have any interest in doing this, but we will keep you young. You know, th this is an experience that will keep you young at heart. So, um, so we do appreciate you being here. But, but my whole point is that you have experienced so much, right? Yeah. Like even you just saying like there's, there's not many of you in this room, probably, I wouldn't say none, but there, there are probably uh, a very, very small amount of you who would remember the Vietnam War. Yeah. You've been through and you've experienced so much. And yeah. this is one of the reasons why we feel so gra grateful to be able to have this moment to talk to you because there's a lot of wisdom here. And um, I, I, so with that, I want to thank you for, for laying that out for us and, and for giving us a little bit of like a, you know, just an overview on, on where you are at right now and your thoughts. Um, but if I can, uh, I would love to kind of just, just point to something on the a little bit more positive side. Yeah. Um, and, and I just want to, I want to express an experience that the three of us had last night, um, where we were, we were invited out to, um, to an event here in Vancouver, in the downtown East side, um, put on by this, this wonderful gentleman named, uh, Mark Brand. And it was a, an event called the, uh, the Greasy Spoon Supper Series. It was the 60th one they've done. Um, and it was not just Mark, but an entire, like, incredible team of people that put this thing on. Um, and uh, this is a little bit of footage from it from that night, or from last night. Uh, beautiful, beautiful experience. I mean, basically, you know, to, to put it short, uh, a fundraiser, you know, a sort of like four or five course meal. And uh, the funds that were raised were to go back to feed the people in the community of the downtown east side of Vancouver. And, um, and yes, sorry, this is, I mean, I'm talking about something that's so like, like, you know, heavy and, and beautiful, but also this stupid video of Taylor's eyeball. Um, but I, I, I want to take what he's taking. <laughs> yeah. it, was, uh, it was raw halibut, I believe. Was, my pupils look big. <laughs> um, but when we were there last night, I was, I was having, you know, I made the realization that, you know, there, there's something about Vancouver that, uh, that I, the three of us from Halifax, we, we, we all feel pretty strongly. Like, this is a really electric, 
beautiful, vibrant city. And uh, this is your, you know, the place where you have spent uh, the majority of your life. And, you know, I'm imagining that it's a city that holds a special place in your heart. And so I'm wondering, um, how has Vancouver played a role in your work in any unique ways? Or, you know, you've spent a lot of time in this community. Yeah. How has this community sort of shaped you as an individual and a professional? Well, I have sort of an ambivalent relationship to Vancouver, to tell you the truth. Uh, I, I arrived here as a 13-year-old from Hungary, which is a sort of a capital city of a history with a, a country with a long history. And I came to Vancouver where the oldest building was 10 years old, you know, because if it was older, they would tear it down and build something new, you know. Wise, and, wise, uh, again. And, and all the history and culture that I was engaged with growing up meant nothing here, you know. And uh, I remember uh, <laughs> I was in grade seven. That's the grade I entered in the fall of 57, my first year here. And in the woodwork shop during IA, Intercell Arts Program, my classmates were listening to the World Series of Baseball. And, you know, the broadcast. And uh, <laughs> this is a bit of a long story, but I'll make it short. I'm from Hungary, and where our football team, soccer team, football in Hungary, you know, everywhere else they call it football. Here they call football a game where the foot never even enters the game. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very so rare. anyway, so we had for some years we had the best football team in the world and um, in the world, and then I come here and I listen to the World Series of baseball. I'm saying, what do you mean world? They're two American teams, <laughs> and I thought only the Americans are arrogant enough to call that, you know, and only the Canadians are stupid enough to yeah. believe them. You know? <laughs> yeah. and, so the Super Bowl a, champions are also, I think they call themselves the world champions. Yeah, the world <laughs> champions, yeah. So anyways, that was a bit of an odd... And, and I used to dream of waking, of, of finding a part of Vancouver that had cobblestones and old buildings and statues, mm. you know. And I'd feel, I'd feel very despondent when I woke up. To find, you know, the oldest building, as I said, is, you know, a few decades old. So it took me a while to get acclimatized here. On the one hand... And I thought, why didn't, couldn't have gone to a more vibrant city with more excitement at that time? It's different now, but at that time. And well, I thought God works in mysterious ways. And when I realized afterwards that had I gone to a place with more external culture and more excitement and more vibrancy than Vancouver was at that time, I probably would have got all caught up in it and I never would have learned about the internal space. Mm. So Vancouver, from that point of view, by its very <laughs> boringness, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> invited me to actually look at, and there's a lot of stuff here that needed to be dealt with. <clears throat> no, that's the one side. Now then, I worked in the downtown east side, yeah. which is an extraordinary place, because you see the deepest suffering and the highest compassion and the, um, the, the, the greatest trauma and the... Um, the greatest love, really, all in a few square block radius. So that had profound influence on me, both as a, a physician and as a person. And uh, there's so much suffering down there. And, you know, the Global Mail, in its wisdom, had a conference once, how do we fix the problem of the downtown east side? Mm -hmm. Well, there is no problem with the downtown east side. There's a problem of Canada. 
which generates a place like that. So that place has everything to teach us about what's good about this country, but also what doesn't work in this country. And um, the fact that about 30% of the people down there were indigenous, mm -hmm. where indigenous people make up 5% of the population, well, that should tell us everything mm. about... Yeah, I mean, so there's a lot of learning to be done on there. It, it, one of the things that Mark said last night during the event was like, you know, yeah. he's, he's done this event in, in Skid Row. He's done this event in New York. He's done this event, you know, all, all across Canada, all, all yeah. across the U.S. And none of those communities stack up to the downtown east side no. of Vancouver. Like no. He was like, there's something so unique yeah. about this place that is, that is going through such harsh and troubled times, yet there is a, yeah. like you said, like this sense of compassion that exists there that yeah. he doesn't see elsewhere. And I just thought that to be like really interesting because again, we, we have like a deep love for this city. Um, and it just, I don't know, like to see that side of it and to see someone who is so ingrained in that piece of the city. It, you know what struck, really me most, what struck me most on there is the authenticity. Mm. I mean, I mean, people lie and they cheat and then manipulate, you know. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> once a guy, I, I, wrote, I wrote about this in my book on addiction, this patient of mine who really liked me. Um, I turned my back, next thing my cell phone is gone. And, uh, <laughs> and I marched to his room in his hotel. I closed the office, marched to his, I, I said, give me my cell phone back. He said, what stuff? I said, give it back. He says, I can't, I'll give it to you tomorrow. I said, no, you give it to me today. He says, I can't, it's already in the um, pawn shop. <laughs> so we marked onto the corner march, uh, pawn shop and the, my patient says to the owner, the guy who owns the cell phone is here, is here. And the pawn shop owner says, why don't you tell me it was stolen, you know? <laughs> what, a, what a surprise, you know? Anyway, I said to the guy afterwards, I know you like me and respect me. Why did you steal my cell phone? He said, what do you want, doc? He says, I'm an addict, you know? Mm -hmm. So they're just, they're, they're liars and cheaters, but they're also totally authentic. Yeah. They don't pretend to be anybody else other than who they are which is a real tonic, because in this culture, so many of us are playing games. They don't yeah. play games. Um, it, wow, that, um, I mean, the thing that I think that struck me so much there from what you just said is uh, just how much of a professional you are, because I didn't tell you this, but literally the next thing that I wanted to talk about was attachment versus authenticity. <laughs> so thank you for that perfect segue that I, I didn't have to try to figure out. I do want to interrupt you before you do that perfect segue. <laughs> All right, fair. I want fair. to ruin the perfect, perfect segue because I, I want to ask, I find it really remarkable when you say that the greatest suffering and trauma is happening in that area, yeah. but also the greatest amount of love. Yeah. And I wonder if it's possible to have that love without the suffering. God damn, Brian. That's a, I know, that's really a great question. I think... Um, something wasn't so dumb. I, I, I think it is. Um, but I also think that um, that suffering evokes the love at the same time. So these people, on the one hand, would steal from each other. On the other hand, they really look after each other, you know? Um, and so many of them, there's something about suffering that invites the best in people. Not that I recommend suffering, but if it happens, and I tell you, so many of them said to me, Doc, if I ever make it out of here, if I ever beat this addiction, 
I'm going to devote the rest of my life to making sure that other people don't have to suffer like I suffer. Mm. So, yeah, there is something about that that evokes the, the compassion and the love, for sure. It's a very interesting, like, there's, I spent a lot of time in my 20s, basically from, like, age 20 to 30, uh, studying and teaching uh, yoga, and a big aspect of that is centered around the idea of suffering and trying to eliminate or uh, take down the amount of suffering through mindfulness yeah. and all these things. And one of the things that I found so interesting about those philosophies was, was that it, it really does put you in this or sort of um, tell you that you do give up. As the suffering goes down, so do the highs. Like mm. The highs and the lows are sort of equivalent to each other. And as you and as you downgrade one, you end up downgrading the other, and that the aspiration in this in these yogic philosophies are to be like this. Mm. And and I find it very philosophically interesting to think about if that is obviously when we're talking about the downtown east side, that's ex an extreme of suffering, yeah, um, and an extreme of highs. Um, but is that something that we want to be in pursuit of, of this? Like, do we want to just be flat or do we want to be, or do we want to fluctuate above and below the line? You know, I think um, life in its, by its very nature brings grief and it brings loss and it brings suffering from that point of view. It brings pain. Um, so I don't think we have to worry about being, ever being flattened out. I also think that the capacity for joy and freedom and love is within us as well. The question is, what generates the suffering? You know, and um, a lot of the suffering that I have generated for myself, I generated for myself. I didn't know I was generating it for myself. Uh, I just thought that was life. But much of what we suffer comes from within. And that kind of suffering, I think we can do without. Mm. So I think... We don't have to worry about being too flat given the way life is. Life brings joys, it brings losses, you know, that's just the nature of life. The question is, is the joy going to be authentic or is it some temporary high? Mm. And is the suffering going to be generated by some blindness on my part? And so I'm more interested in the causes of the suffering that people generate for themselves and for others I don't worry about will we be too flat if we don't suffer. I don't think so. I don't think so. We could always just buy dogs and then yeah. <laughs> they die. That's right. And it's really yeah. fucking sad. That's yeah. right. <laughs> but it's super great before. Yeah. Super great. Before Fluctuation. They, before they you do yeah. have a good point there, though, Brian. I mean, like when you buy a dog, you are setting yourself up for the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. Absolutely. Well, In I, a my, short span of time. Well, my wife says that God's one of... One of God's big mistakes was to make the, life, the lifetime of dogs so much shorter than human beings. Yeah. Uh, on yeah. the other hand, I heard a comedian once say that um, I heard two dogs talking to each other. And one of them said to the other one, you know, the thing about human beings, if you treat them well, one of them will look after several generations of us. No. <laughs> Oh, God damn it. I didn't. <laughs> I, I knew there was going to be waterworks. I didn't want it to be. About dogs. About, 
my dog. That's donut? the worst kind. Fuck. <laughs> um, yeah, they're they are. I, mean, I I just lo- I lost a dog recently, um, and it was you know it was one of the hardest things that I've ever gone through in my life. But it was also one of the things that made me realize that um, if you want to truly experience love, yeah, you can't do that unless you are ready to take on the serious experience of grief and and grief i mean you know grief is love yeah you know and that's it's it's such an it's such an important experience absolutely um i think it might have been who was it that said that was it stephen jenkinson who we were talking about before the show that that said that grief is an is is just a actually i said that to stephen and he was like he was like you know what? I That's fucking sick. hate that quote. And I was like, oh, okay, well, next question. Uh, well, our brains are actually wired for grief. We have a circuitry in our brains for grief that we share with other mammals. Elephants mm. grieve. Mm-hmm. Whales grieve. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we also, so we're also wired for love mm. so that the two go together, really. That's right. Yeah. You know, and, you know, the dog that you lost, I lost a dog 45 years ago now. I still dream about him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Big B is uh, he's here. He's he's up there somewhere drooling on all of us. Yeah, you know, he was a drooler. He was a drooler. Hey, do you, um, know, do you know the song called "Old Shep" by Elvis Presley? Old Shep. Yeah, you want to cry? L- play the song. No, I don't. I don't. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't think you understood. I don't. You know, I want to suppress my feelings. That's if there's a doggy heaven, then this I know. Old Shep has a wonderful home. That's what it ends. You know, you got to check that song out. Oh, oh my God, Brian, you're gonna ruin Brian. <laughs> yeah. Bri- Brian, Brian is an old Shep. Um, Aren't I fun? <laughs> well. We'll just uh, let this play for a moment as we move on. No, don't. To, uh, this is Old Shep. No, I, no, 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 no. I can't be doing this. What the hell am I doing? No, can't Come go on, Gavin. Save it for later. Save it for later. Go back to the... Um, authenticity. Uh, authenticity and attachment. Hey, yeah. There's some of the attachment and authenticity I want to talk about. Um, but you did, you did mention authenticity there a couple of times. And, yeah. and I believe you, you might have thrown the word attachment in there probably because you knew that that's where I was going. Um, but that is some... So, you know, the, the myth... How many, how, many of you, how many of you have read The Myth of Normal? Oh, okay, there we go. Well, I'm sorry. We're going to be uh, doing a little bit of review. Um, in the myth of normal, you do you do talk about attachment and authenticity, and there, you know there's only a few of you that clapped, which is which I'm glad. I'm glad it wasn't none of you, um, but I'm also glad it wasn't all of you. And uh, I would love to kind of dive into the the topic of attachment and yeah. the topic of authenticity yeah. and yeah. how those two things seem to come into conflict with one another. But before we get into that. Can you just kind of break down, like, what do those two things mean in relation to human development? Well, so let me ask this audience a question, and I can't see your faces very well, but I can see your hands if you raise them. How, how many of you had the experience of having a strong gut feeling about something, and then you ignored it, and you were sorry afterwards? Okay, most of you, okay. Those gut feelings are your authentic self. You're born with them. We're born with gut feelings. Um, in fact, infants, that's all they have. They don't have thoughts. They don't have memories. They have their gut feelings. 
when you raised your hand to indicate that at some point you had gut feelings you ignored, you were telling about your, your childhood. Something happened in your childhood that made you divorced from your gut feelings so that you don't even feel them, or even when you do, you don't believe them. And then you suffer. So what happened? Well, if you look at human beings, how we evolved in um, nature, and until the blink of an eye ago, we all lived out in nature. I mean, civilization is like five minutes on the clock, you know, as compared to human existence. We lived out in nature. How long does any creature in nature survive without being connected to their gut feelings? And auto simply means the self. So authenticity is going to be connected to yourself. So that is necessary for survival. So what happens? Well, another need that we have as infants and as mammalian infants, whether we're mice or whales or, or um, cats or elephants or humans. Don't say dogs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> We, we need to be connected, we need to be attached, we need to be looked after, to be held, to be looked after, to be nurtured, to be protected, guided. And that's called attachment, that connection with another creature for the sake of being nurtured and protected is called attachment. So we have a powerful attachment drive in our brains, which is also necessary for friendship amongst the three of you, for partnership with spouses and other people. So attachment is just an important human dynamic for which we're wired. Great. So ideally, we can be ourselves, connected to ourselves, and be attached. Well, what happens in a lot of families, as happened with my kids, is one example, because of my own limitations and traumas as a parent, but happens in a lot of families, is kids get the message, if that they're authentically themselves, they're not acceptable. Their anger is not acceptable, their joy is not acceptable, their curiosity is not acceptable, their pain, their grief is not acceptable, the sadness, cheer up, nothing to be upset about, you know, mm. or if you're angry, get out of here. Well, the child gets the message, am I from authentic, I can't be attached. Not as an impossible, what we call a tragic tension in this book is, from authentic, I won't be accepted. If I want to be accepted, I have to suppress my authenticity. And this is unconscious, it's automatic, it's not a choice the child, child, the child consciously makes. It's a protective, adaptive mechanism. It gets wired into us, and for the rest of our lives, we're afraid to be ourselves for fear of being rejected. Mm -hmm. And that process doesn't just happen in the family of origin, it happens in the schools. It happens on the job, it happens throughout this culture. So we all present a certain face to the world, and underneath it, there's this little self that's afraid to express itself. Mm. So that's the tension between authenticity and attachment. Now that tension is a major source of both mental and physical illness, according to me and according to a lot of science. So the, that's why it's so important. So a lot of people get into their late 20s, 30s, maybe 40s, and they say, the, whose life am I leading anyway? And who am I? You know? And that's because they've been programmed not to be themselves. And just to finish this, there was a book published maybe 12 years ago by an Australian palliative care nurse. She worked with uh, people. Ronnie, who, who Ronnie Ware. Dying people, yeah. Yeah. And, and she, she, the book was called, the, and I used to work in palliative care. P 
people who died before their time because of malignancy or chronic illness. And the book is called The Top Five Regrets of Dying People. And you know what the top regret of dying people is? I'm talking about people who died before their time, is that they were not themselves, that they tried to please other people all their lives rather than be themselves, rather than express their emotions. That's yeah. the top regret. And that's because of what I just said. I, 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 what, what stands out to me in that is in, in, in the piece that you said about how you, that, that showed up in, in your life and yeah. with your kids. Yeah. And I mean, this is very top of mind for me right now. I have a daughter, she's a year and a half, and yeah. I have another daughter on the way very soon. And I'm, I'm constantly, and especially since we spoke last year, I'm very much... I'm very much aware and trying to be as aware as I could possibly be about how I think about parenting and everything. Yeah. And so um, I, I, I wonder when I hear these, when, when you talk about the way in which a child is expressing themselves authentically yeah. and we have these sort of like knee-jerk reactions like, it's okay, don't worry, yeah. don't do that, whatever, yeah. don't stop crying, this isn't the place. Yeah. Um, which shuts down their authenticity and then creates these issues. You, in, a, in, in so many ways, the action of a parent in that scenario is not intentional to, to create any no. suffering. No. And, and, and it's in that piece of it being an unintentional act that, is, that you don't recognize in the moment or yeah. very rarely do recognize yeah. in the moment that then creates this experience in child, which probably makes it very likely that then they will behave in the same way yeah. with their children. How, how, do we, how should we think about breaking that How cycle? do I not fuck yeah, up I, my kid? <laughs> I was just thinking the same thing. Like, I, I want to have a kid, like, and I've been thinking about having a kid, and every time I like, really think about having a kid, that's the thought I have, which is, what am I thinking about? Like, I'm, uh, there's no way I can't fuck them no, up. No, I mean, like, I mean, I, I mean I, so, so here's my thought. Even, my, I'm watching you try, and then I see you try, and I not, go, he's doing it, he's fucking I, up. My, my, question, my, my question really, my question isn't really, it's not really about me that much, because I feel like I... Am perfect. I feel like I am absolutely perfection. No, I feel like, I feel like just the fact that I'm trying to think about it often Ooh. is going to give me a leg up massively on... Or, or on diminishing the amount of suffering that I might inflict on my child. Yeah. But without yeah. that, without that, if that's not something, if somebody doesn't have access to uh, being able to speak with you, <laughs> um, how might somebody break the cycle? Well, there's um, one of the former British poet laureates, Philip Larkin, had a poem called, uh, it begins, they fuck you up, you mom and dad. They do not mean to that. They do not mean to, but they do. They give you all the faults they had and add a few and, and add some extra just for you, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and it ends with, man hands out misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Um, get, out any, get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. That's what... Uh, I mean, a, you know, it, it really yeah. does, it, it, that, it speaks, like, the accumulation, like, that, that, yeah. that content of that, of what you just said, the accumulation of these things, it really speaks to, like, the very beginning of your book, Myth of Normal, talking about how we've just created this normal that is far from normal, but the goalposts have moved so massively. Yeah, but, but, here's, some, but, but here's some good news, okay? Your kid is a year and a half, now you said? Okay. How old were you 
when your parents started asking themselves, how to let you be authentic? How old were you then when they asked themselves that question? Probably when I heard it for the first time was probably when I was uh, 19 years old and I quit hockey, which I thought would destroy my father. And to then realize that he's, he told me, I actually don't, I don't, that doesn't disappoint me. That doesn't, that was probably the time. Wonderful. But you grew up thinking that you had to please him, right? Yeah. Okay, now, what would it have meant for you if when you're a one and a half years old or young or even a half year old, your parents had asked themselves that question? It would have opened up a entire ocean of experience. Well, that's the gift you've already given to your child. Okay. Right? And, uh, and, and, uh, Jesus Christ, man, what the fuck? <laughs> no, uh, now, you know what? When people say to me, I'm afraid I screwed up my kids, I said, of course you did. Don't worry about it, you know? <laughs> so, but you know what? Yeah. We don't have to be perfect. Yeah. But if you're asking those questions already, and then your kid's in good shape. Mm. But, but what about if... So, like, if, you're, if your parents have never given you that opportunity yeah. to be your authentic self, yeah. um, which is why I feel like I have a really emotional reaction to that, because yeah. I don't feel like I've ever gotten that from my parents yeah um how how do we whose responsibility is it to approach that subject with like do i just go to my parents and go what the fuck guys like yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. What, what do we do about this um yeah. like how do, how do you approach that subject well okay so what in you is even asking that question I think it's the fact that, like, I think about wanting to have kids someday and I don't want to fuck them no, up. No, but, 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 but who in you even wants to know about authenticity? I think it's the, it's the, the three-year-old in me who didn't... No, it's not. <laughs> uh, how do you even know what authenticity... You know what authenticity is? Do you have a sense of it? Some sense of it? I think so. Yeah. yeah of course but who, you in you know, who in you knows that? I know that. <laughs> you have a deep sense of authenticity in you. That's your heritage as a human being. So whether your parents recognize that or not, you never lost it. You couldn't have. And something in you is aware of it. Mm. That part of you is, ask, is having you ask that question. That part of you is recognizing it. Like, can you think of examples in your life, either recently or remotely, when you weren't being authentic? When you were pretending or trying to please others and so on? Were there such times? When you were dancing in that yeah. opening video uh, this <laughs> today. Yeah. I, think, I, I think it's when, like, I think of probably the, the moments that I'm, the least authentic version of myself is when I like play sports with other guys. And what you what are you pretending then? To be macho and tough and okay. And who in you recognizes that you're pretending? I don't. I don't think I. I don't know if I know the answer. Well, but but there's something in there that knows, doesn't? Isn't there? I guess so, yeah. Well, that's your authentic self. You just got to pay attention to it, that's all. So when you say, even though my parents, or despite the fact that my parents didn't know how to 
honor that in me because they hadn't maybe honored it in themselves or into, you know, there's something in you that's still there that knows. So it's just a matter of paying attention to it. I think that's that's the good news. I mean, I, I, I love that you brought this up, right? Because I think that this is like a really great segue into, um, we, we, we've learned that you're, you're working on a new project with your son. Yeah. Uh, called Hello Again, A Fresh Start for Parents and Their Adult Children. Yeah. Um, and uh, your son, Daniel, and you have been working on, you know, you've been doing these workshops and you've been working on a new book. Yeah. Uh, and the idea is like the, the complexities of the relationship between the, the you know, the, the parent and the adult child. Yeah. Um, and I think this kind of touches in on, you know, what you're talking about right here. Um, you know, I think that we, I think all of us can like kind of agree that we all suppress our feelings for a variety of different ways, whether that's to, you know, protect ourselves or to avoid, you know, judgment or embarrassment. Um, and, and those types of things lead to us getting like stuck in these old patterns and habits. And in turn, like, you know, for you, Brian, I, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like you have this experience with your father, let's say, that comes from an experience that you had a long time ago. And that experience carries over, over the years. And so now that you're a grown adult, the experience that you had as a young child has carried on into your adult life, which now makes it hard for you to be close to your father. You keep your father at this like arm's length that doesn't allow you to like connect with him as a human, as, as who he is today, right? I think like anybody in this audience who's like had a moment where they've connected with their mother or their father in a way where they went, holy fuck, yeah, right, you're, you're just like me. Like you're not, you're not on some pedestal. You're not some, you know, just because you're my mom and dad, like you're not perfect. You, we, you're flawed. Um, Somebody should write a song that goes, Old man, look at my life. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a lot like you were. God, if someone would just write it. Sick Boy Podcast will be right back after this very short break. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. So I guess uh, with all that said, um, tell us about tell us about hello again, and and tell us about you know the especially with the fact that you're writing this book and you're doing these workshops with your son, which I think is like really, really interesting, really neat. You know, what is that relationship like? And, well, and what so, are the things so, that you've recognized? So here's the thing. I mean, think of the almost impossibility of it. The human, the adult human is, has got 37 trillion cells in our bodies. Okay. About that. The child begins life as a one celled organism. So on the one hand, you have these two parents, each with 37 trillion cells, then it is one cell organism. That's for a few seconds, there's only one cell, then it starts dividing. But talk about inequality. 
And that little one cell thing that becomes money cells is growing up inside somebody else's body for nine months. And when they come out, they're this big and the parents are like this big. How the hell do they ever get to a position of equality and understanding each other? Such a huge challenge, you know, and uh, a lot of things happen along the way. And for those of us that have had issues with our parents as adults, and I certainly did, I mean, my dad died and um, my brothers were uh, mourning, they were crying, and I couldn't cry. And um, I was almost resentful. And I'm not proud of this, I'm just telling you what came up for me. Um, I'm neither proud of it or, or denouncing it, I'm just saying this is what happened. And I said, if he was so wonderful, why am I so screwed up, you know? And so we build up resentments along the way. And I can also tell you that I went to a workshop once where people were talking about their parents and then the workshop leader says, would all of you who are between 25 and 30 stand up? So the young people stood up and, and the workshop leader says, those were your parents when you were small. These young people who didn't know what the hell they were doing, you know. And then we resent them all these years, you know. And so it's a very complicated relationship. Yeah. And so that's why we have this workshop, Hello Again, A Fresh Start, which means can we start now to actually get to know each other if we want to or to let go of each other. Mm. That's what we need. To. It's not a question of it's going to be tickety-boo, beautiful, wonderful, all the way from now on to the end, which, but let's just at least be adults about it. I I, uh, I I just want to say like this idea of that workshop. Yeah. I wish I knew of something similar to that or exactly that thing uh, 15, 15 years ago. So do I. I <laughs> I uh, my my. I've, I've had this, I've been thinking about this a lot lately where, where I've had this, I had this really interesting experience where uh, I live with cystic fibrosis. Yeah. And um, when I was, when I was growing up, my parents who were, you know, they were just, they were just kids. Yeah. They had me yeah. and they were going to the CF clinic and they had this experience where they were going to the CF clinic and they continuously asked the, the clinic um, when do we have the conversation with Jeremy about the fact that CF is a life-shortening illness? And the clinic kept saying, oh, you don't. Um, he'll come to you when he finds out if he has questions. And then that's when you have the conversation. Mm. And so, of course, I find out when I'm 10 by reading this pamphlet that's all about cystic fibrosis. It's like for my teachers, right, to give them a sense of what it's like to have a kid in, in your class with CF. And so I read the pamphlet, and, of, of course, I don't go to my parents with questions completely fucks me up. I take that information and I bury it as deep as I can. And it took about 11 years for me to recognize yeah. that that experience left me hating my parents. Yeah. I, I despised my mother. And, yeah. and I had so much disdain towards my, my family for not wow. telling me that thing. Yeah. Luckily, we got to a point where, like, I was 21 and we had a conversation and we kind of resolved that. But mm. I do wonder, like, how much of that resentment even carried through after that whole experience, after there was forgiveness, after we kind of came together. Like, 
what kind of, you know, how did that affect our, my relationship with my mother even now as a 35-year-old man? Well, can I ask you a question? Sure. Prior to you finding this information, almost accidentally it sounds like, looking back, did you or perhaps did you not have some sense that there's something you're not being told, that there's something going on that you're not aware of? Did you have any sort of thing at all? No. I mean, I knew I was sick. I had CF. Yeah. Um, yeah. But to me, it was like, you know, it was like an everyday sort of an everyday annoyance or an everyday nuisance. It was like, well, yeah. you're, you know, you have to do the yeah. medications and you okay. have to do these things. Yeah. But like, other than that, I was a normal boy. Okay. After you found out, how did you feel? You felt upset with them? I felt shocked and did you angry. See, you saw and yourself as being betrayed or lied to? A hundred percent. Yeah. Did you talk to him about it? Nope. Didn't no. say a word. Okay, well, look, here's the problem. Let's say you had a kid, or any of you, and that child felt shocked, upset, angry with you, had a sense of betrayal. Who would you want them to talk to? You, yeah. Me, okay. dad. Yeah. yeah. So something happened between you and your parents that by the time you were 10 or 11 years old, you couldn't be straight with them, mm. which is a kind of, not that they meant to do it, look at the challenge they were dealing with. Yeah. I mean, you, you've probably thought about their position and what's it like to have a child where you have to worry about their very life. I mean, that's not what it's meant to be about. You know, so we can empathize and understand their situation perfectly well, but something happened that by the time you were that old, you were... You didn't trust them. Didn't have it in me. Yeah. You didn't have the connection with them. That's what you're resenting. Yeah. Okay. Damn. Holy shit. <laughs> I mean, don't and drop that, the mic. Ladies and gentlemen, is what we that call was a mic drop. Uh, yeah. Well, I never thought about it that way. I mean, you know, it's funny. It's like I always thought about it as a, as a moment of going, oh, well, th that making that realization made me think that they were... You know, they weren't there for me. And therefore like the experience, like, yeah. like the very fact that you found something. That was the thing that made me feel like I couldn't speak to them. But that's a really, oh, I, I, time, to I go, ah! time to take it to in therapy. Time to go to therapy again. I, I'm, um, I am, I'm, I'm not from there. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I'm, I'm just really curious about, so like talking about um, working on relationships yeah. with your parents as an adult child. Yeah. Um, you talked about the option of like deciding that that relationship may no longer serve you and 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 sort of letting it go or making the effort to like to yeah. to meet each other again. Yeah. How do you know what decision is right? Well, you don't. Um, Fuck. What, what what you need? Uh, <laughs> Shit. Uh, but you do, but you know what you might want. And. Um, if there's a part of you that, that perhaps wonders about the possibility of a deeper and more honest connection, you just might want to explore that. Mm. You know, what's the worst case scenario? That you lose them? Which you already have. God, Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, because, I mean, what I mean by that is they're alive, but mm -hmm. that connection is not there. Mm -hmm. So the worst case scenario is, is that connection won't be there, but it isn't there already. Yeah. So, uh, so what you risk is disappointment. And what you risk is 
maybe a sense of rejection. What you risk is some emotional pain. That's what you risk. How do you how do you manage your expe- expectations though? In that, like, I, I think of. So, um, Jared mentioned that like I keep my relationship with my dad at arm's, arm's length. length. Yeah, and I like I oftentimes think of him as not having the capacity to like and perhaps he meet me emotionally. Yeah. yeah, and and when I think of that, I think, oh, he won't be the thing that I want him to be for me. Yeah, like my expectation. Yeah. So, like, what part of that is managing my expectations, but also, you know, yeah, being open to the fact that we could maybe compromise somewhere. Yeah. Um, well, people come to a workshop not always with the parents, or not always with the adult children. Sometimes they just come. The adult parent, the, the parent will show up, or the adult child will show mm-hmm. up, and. There's a lot of work that you can do to clarify what you really want. And the thing about expectation is there's nothing wrong with it as long as you're willing to accept disappointment. So the question is, are we mature enough to handle disappointment? Mm. And part of us isn't because part of us is still that little child that was so hurt. But as an adult, can you handle disappointment? You know? I'm not saying you should be able to handle it. I'm saying that's the question. If you decide you can't, don't even try. If you if you decide that, yeah, you know what, it's worth it. I don't know how much. I don't know. I don't know how old your dad is. I don't manage. I don't imagine he's that old. You know, but but at some point, just do do this thought experiment of, well, if my dad died, will I have any regrets for not having tried? I don't know. Mm. Yeah, I, I. It's funny. Like we we had a little uh, a little sort of pre interview meeting, and and one of the things that we said to ourselves, we were like, all right, we promise each other that we're not going to make this about like a therapy session for ourselves. <laughs> and then that's exactly how's what that go- we how's did. that going for you? It's, uh, <laughs> we failed. I'm laying the blame on you guys. But listen, but listen, here's the thing. Here's the thing you could do. You got friends here. Mm. I mean, you guys are tight. You know, you really love each other. You could take a risk with your dad and have these guys have your back. Yeah. You know, and say, you know, that that might not be available, but this is. Mm. So that you're not that helpless. I'll be your dad, Brian. So that, yeah, so, I've always so, wanted to be your so, daddy. So, so that, so yeah, you're not, you're not that helpless, isolated child anymore. So whatever you, the worst of it, you've already gone through. At some point, you were helpless, isolated, and vulnerable, and resourceless. You're not anymore. So the worst case scenario is, this guy is not up for contact. Whatever's happened to him, he's closed off. Well, you got these guys. And we've been, doing it, for, and we've been doing it for 23 years, so, you know. And I know all that shit with your dad. And I know your dad. I got you. I yeah. love you. We'll be your daddy. <laughs> <laughs> And Gabor will be your granddaddy. <laughs> um, I, uh, we're, we're coming up to time here, but, um, uh, the, and, and there's about a thousand things that we didn't get to that we wanted to, um, which I knew that was going to happen. But be, be, before we do come up to the, uh, the last little piece that I want to kind of touch on, yeah. I'm just 
you know, again, I said earlier, and, and I didn't mean to say it like in a in a way that's uh, that's m- meant to make you feel any particular way, but like as someone who has been here for quite a while, you got to um, rub it in, don't you? I, uh, I, you know, something we talk a lot about on the yeah. show, and that we're we're very familiar with talking about, is the idea of of death and and our own mortality. I mean, I just mentioned yeah. it there. Like at ten years old, it's something I've been thinking about for a long time. And I can imagine that you, it's something that you've thought about. And so I'm curious about, and this is a little bit ethereal and a little bit out there, but what are your thoughts on death and, and what comes after death, if anything, or, or do you believe that there's nothing or like, what are your thoughts on the afterlife? Um, it is a thought that comes up. And by the way, um, this business of getting old, there's an interesting English expression that says growing old. Now, we could say getting old, and we do, but we also say growing old. What the hell does that mean? I mean, when we, grow, when we get older, we usually shrink, don't we? I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. A, it's not a question of growing. But I'm just reading um, some Greek, ancient Greek plays, and one of them it says that as long as you're capable of learning, you can still be young at any age. Yeah. So for me, it's kind of an interesting adventure. I am learning still. So it's still a matter of growth. Even as my body shrinks, I do grow. You know, and uh, I don't know, did I ever tell you guys my epitaph? On my grave, it's going to say, this is brilliant. (laughs) 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 Even if I say, you know, uh, it's going to say, it was a lot more work than I had anticipated. (laughs) 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 No. That's awesome. As for what comes afterwards, you know what? My mind doesn't go there. I don't... Not at all. Not at all. No, mm-hmm. what goes afterwards is they put me in the ground. Yeah. And they, you know... Yeah, are you religious I, at all? No. You don't, you don't subscribe no, to any particular no, I mean, de- denomination? Look, I, I, the, uh, spirituality and religion are not the same thing. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So if you said, do I have a spiritual side of me? I think we all do. Yeah. Am I religious? Not in the least. And... Um, which is not to say that I haven't learned a lot from the great religious teachers, you know, yeah. Buddha, Jesus, yeah. Yeah. Hebrew prophets, and so on. But no, I don't have a concept of an afterlife. My mind just simply doesn't go there. My mind doesn't know what to do with that. Mm. Um, I, I'm not in the least concerned about it one way or the other. I'm just mm. concerned with what happens here while I still have some choice in the matter. You know, yeah. Yeah. that's all. Yeah. As far as death... Um, It's one of those things that intellectually we all know. But let me tell you something. I, I interviewed it. This is in the myth of normal. There's a guy who wrote a book called Blessed with a Brain Tumor. This is a young guy in his 20s who's diagnosed with a brain tumor. Interestingly enough, the brain tumor showed up in the same spot that when he used to be depressed, he would point an imaginary gun and shoot himself in the head. Mm. In that very spot, he got a brain tumor. Oh. You figure out what that may mean. Anyway, I said, what do you mean blessed with a brain tumor? Because he was actually saying that this cancer, that he's lived longer than his prognosis, but it may very well take his life. What do you mean blessed? He says, well, knowing that I'm going to die, but really knowing that I'm going to die, means that every moment is sacred. Yeah. It means that every action I have, every conversation I engage in, everybody I meet, this may be the last time I may be experiencing this. And he says, that makes life so special. Yeah. 
Now, intellectually, we all know it's going to happen to us. Yeah. But do we live like that? So that death awareness, and we mentioned our mutual acquaintance and friend, Stephen Jenkinson, he's so good on death, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and what death can teach us. And, uh, yeah, if it could only teach us to be present, um, it would mean watching a lot less YouTube uh, <laughs> Watching myself, you know, or watching the latest, you know, soccer game between Manchester yeah. United and whoever, you know, because I mean, every moment matters. So I, I can only wish that death would inform my life right now. Yeah. My, it, my most valuable teacher has been cystic fibrosis. How do you mean that, by that? I mean, that, that's the thing that has, that has given, that has forced me yeah. to stare down the, the, stare down the face of death. Yeah. And and not just stare at it, but openly and 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 with 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 wide open arms, embrace it. Wow. And it's, I mean, you know, it, it's made me who I am, and I love who I am. Um, that's it's a big big piece of me. A little a little contrary, a little contrary to something you just said. We had one of our one of the first interviews that we ever did for this podcast. Yeah. This, would, this would have been 2015. And we were using a free space in the new Halifax library to record the podcast. And we had, um, uh, Brian had a friend that he had worked with that he found out had a brain tumor. Mm. And this was like, we were, we were, I mean, we've talked with so many people who live with life-threatening illnesses and all sorts of things. And, and now it, it seems very, it seems, it seems very, we're very acquainted with that with that. And at the time we weren't at all. And we were yeah. very, very nervous and scared to say the wrong thing, ask the wrong question, offend him in some way, whatever. I mean, he was, when he knew that he was going to die, he, he, he knew that it was, he was going to die within most likely within a year. Wow. And I remember asking him if it was true, this, this idea that, you know, do you, are all the colors brighter mm -hmm. and is every morning sunny and, you know, even when the cloud is everything is every moment rich. And he said, he said, you know, when when they when I found out that I was definitely going to die, it was for a bit. Mm. And then I just went back to being human after a while. Huh. And I started to do the things that humans do spend time doing something that doesn't really matter. Yeah. And I and I found that to be so interesting that it's almost like even the idea when death is so close it can become we can we still have the capacity to normalize it yeah in this way where we we don't see it as this impending force that is right in front of our eyes i just i've, I've always found that fascinating you know the buddha had his monks meditate on in in cemeteries and he had to meditate on rotting bodies and he had to meditate on bones falling apart and the, and the bones turning into dust you know that was one of the meditations that he taught his uh, students mm. iron maiden i i mean i i feel like i, I yeah, that's right metal dude I, I i find the i find the, the the contemplation of death to be so interesting because yeah. there are moments in that contemplation of which because of the work that we do is often um, where I find that I'm so at peace with it, yeah. and then moments where it scares me so aggressively, yeah. and how I can experience those two things almost 
in the same moment. That's right. I think that means that's what you mean by being a human being. I think. Yeah. Um, I we we are we are cut pretty much at we're overtime. Um, but uh, I wanna I wanna finish this off with a fun little sort of uh, rapid fire like Larry King style yeah. question, sort of like one word answer sort of thing. Um, and uh, and I hope that uh, I hope that you enjoy this. There's a couple of stupid ones in here. Um, <laughs> So let's, uh, let's try this. Um, what's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? Open my eyes. <laughs> Fucking nailed it. <laughs> what is your guilty pleasure? Guilty pleasure? Watching myself on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Love the honesty. I hate, I hate to admit it, but you know, <laughs> it's such, a, it's such a, a sick thing to do. But, you know. I get it. What's your favorite book outside of your own? Oh, my God. The Iliad. Yes. I read that about five times. Yeah. Yes. Who's your role model? I don't have one. I don't have one role model. I, I, there's many people I've learned from, but there isn't anyone that I would say I'm walking in their footsteps. I, I don't have one role model. Maybe I should, but I don't. If you could give one piece of advice to yourself at a younger age, what would it be? Lighten up. <laughs> if you could distill the essence of healing into one word, what would it be? It's what um, you were talking about. It's about connecting with yourself. I mean, healing means wholeness. And so becoming whole, literally it means wholeness. So becoming whole, which means our disconnection from our authentic self and reconnecting. That's what healing is. I said one word, but that's great. Yeah. You said okay. wholeness. Ho wholeness. 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 Okay. <laughs> if laughter were a form of medicine, what would be your recommended dosage? In oh. milliliters. <laughs> Laugh all the time. Yeah. Life is ridiculous. Speaking of ridiculous, what's your favorite emoji? Uh, my, my favorite emoji? Your favorite emoji. It's this. It's this. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, I love it. That's a great yeah. Who would you jo cast? Jo John Travolta, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the dance side of the fever. Yeah. The uh, Boogie Nights. Um, who would you cast to play you in your biopic? Ooh. Oh, Al Pacino. Hey, let's go. He's thought about, he thought about that. He's thought about that. Actually, actually Timothy Chalamet. I mean, <laughs> you know what? You know what? Do you see this? Uh, I can see it. Timothy Chalamet is going to look exactly it. like you I when he's it. 80 years old. I'm sure he'd be flattered oh to hear goodness. that. <laughs> he would be. That's he I mean that, that's a role. Uh, if your wisdom could be bottled and sold, what would the label say? Priceless. <laughs> we got two more. In the alternate universe of dream jobs, what would be your occupation? I'd be a drummer. Yeah. Right. Very rock and roll. The last one here. 
Live, laugh, or love. You can only pick one. Laugh. Yeah. All right. Uh, Gabor, I got to say, you are, I, I mean, again, we, we love you. This has been such a treat. Uh, and everyone, please, just for a moment, give a huge round of applause for Gabor Mate. Thank you. And, Thanks. and, here, vamp for a second. Uh, what are we vamping on? Well, it really... I, you, you, all right, all done, all done. We're good. We're good. I, I, I do want to. I, I want to say, say this. When when we spoke to you a year ago, you finished up. Uh, we were we were we we had stopped recording, and and you had said like, you know what, guys, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. And uh, and if you're ever in Vancouver, let me know. <laughs> and we did. We held you to that. And we very much appreciate the fact well, that I, I'm you just were so glad you guys that. came. It's wonderful. It's yeah. great to hang out with you. It really is wonderful. Yeah, we loved it. We yeah. loved it. We love this. And uh, we love this book. And uh, right now in my hands, I'm holding not only the myth of normal, but the myth of normal that has been signed by Dr. Gabor Mate. So who here? Who here who does not have the book currently would like to have this? I'm going to give it to you because I saw you put your hand up first. Yeah, it sucks to be at the back with these lights. It does. Because I can't, can't see where, anything where none of you at exist. Um, but, uh, but you know what? In this moment right now, I want to say this. You're, uh, Gabor, you're friends with... You know Oprah, right? Oprah? Oprah? Winfrey? Uh, who was that? No, uh, <laughs> she's, uh, she's kind of a famous TV personality, but uh, her thing, she... We're going to do a little... Uh, we're going to do a little bit of this. All right, right, open your boxes. Open your boxes. One, two, three. You're all getting a school bus. You're all getting a signed book. You get a book. You, you get, get a book. book. You, you get, get a book. book. You get a book. You get a book. You get a book. This so, so fucking stupid. Oh my god. <laughs> but seriously, we're, we're all gonna we're gonna give everybody a book, a signed signed book. book. Um, signed book. I want to say we 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 deeply 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 appreciate everybody coming out here tonight. I know that there's quite a few people who aren't familiar with the podcast. And, uh, and it means a lot that you came out here to, to uh, I mean, really, to, to see this beautiful man speak. But, uh, but it also means a lot to us that you, 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 know, you put your trust in us to come here. And, and, uh, and we love you all so much. For all of our, our fans that have been listening for a while, we love you so much. And uh, this has been a really, really special experience for us. We, we love this city. We love performing here. The Biltmore is an incredible place. Big round of applause for everybody who works here. The sound... The bar, truly, truly incredible people. Um, and, uh, and with that, uh, so, so how this is going to work, I'll just put this out here. As you leave, uh, you, you can grab a book on your way out. And, uh, and I think they're making everyone exit that way. So just an FYI. Um, so please uh, take a book, enjoy it, and give yourselves a huge round of applause. Uh, just for the... For the sake of uh, the recording of the podcast, if we could, 
Uh, I'm just going to say this. That is it for this week. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. And I'm Jeremy. And this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.